There is nothing more deceptive than an obvious fact. Sherlock Holmes, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. You're listening to Writing Roots, brought to you by Aspen House Publishing. Welcome to Writing Roots. I'm Lee Hole. And I'm Lee Esses. And our last episode, we kind of railed against the romance and YA genre a little. And now it's the mystery thriller's turn. That's going to be the fun thing about this month, was we're talking about tropes. We're going to play it fair and pretty much target every genre at one point in time. Yes. So next episode will be my turn, but this one is also kind of my turn a little bit as a suspense thriller action novelist. Today we are talking about the red herring and or the shaggy dog story. Mostly the red herring. Shaggy dog story is similar in that a red herring is something that is intentionally used and introduced in order to mislead your audience. Shaggy Dog Story is a story that just wanders down the path over there and it just keeps going. And why are we talking about this? Especially the red herring is very common in mysteries. If it is used correctly, it is an amazing trope. But it has to be used with just the right amount of misdirection. Because that's what the red herring is all about. Yes. I actually participated in a play. It was about a decade ago now. I was helping run tech, but it was a kind of a dinner comedy thing about wine. And so they had like a whole uncorking ceremony thing. And when they opened the chest, the set designers had put two red herrings on the inside of the chest. And that was when during this song and dance ceremony thing that they had, that was when the poisoning was actually happening. Because it was all farcical, but it was also murder mystery kind of dinner theater thing. But there were literally red herrings as part of the set because the authors have that sense of humor. They also have the red herring very apparent and called out in the Netflix series, A Series of Unfortunate Events. Yeah, I think it's one of those favorites to make fun of with a lot of authors. So if you're somewhere between terrifying and comedic, I think red herrings are a lot of fun to just play with because the people who are reading or understanding your audience in that regard all know what a red herring is and they're playing to their audience, definitely. So what is it about a red herring that makes a red herring trope? The red herring trope is when something is introduced just for the sake of distracting your audience. As a negative, it's wasting your audience's time and you're just using it as a shiny over here so nobody actually knows what's going on. If you're using it in a positive way, it's to distract from the fact that you just dropped a gigantic clue. We talked about that a little bit in the plot twist episode of distracting from the information that they need to know about the plot twist. So that's a, oh, by the way, my dad has green eyes. Fight scene. Fight scene is the red herring when the green eyes is the clue. Sometimes you have just that immediate distraction, and sometimes you can kind of write a double blind. So you can make something seem like a red herring, so this fight scene, you learn information and you go down this path, and then you actually end up using that information. So there's kind of a funny story in the Harry Potter series. I listened to another podcast called Potterless, And the whole idea of the series is that the host, Mike Schubert, goes through reading the Harry Potter books for the first time. As he was reading the fourth Harry Potter book, 
he was determined that Ludo Bagman was the evil guy in the story. (laughs) Because he knew about the red herring trope, and he looked at Ludo Bagman and Barty Crouch, both of whom were acting suspiciously. So he thought that it was this double-blind situation where Barty Crouch was the more obvious bad guy, so it couldn't be him. It had to be Ludo Bagman, who was also an obvious bad guy, but not quite the same as Barty Crouch. So he spent the entire fourth book thinking that Ludo Bagman was bad and that Barty Crouch was the red herring. And it was flipped. So sometimes it can be fun, especially in a story like Harry Potter, to throw a couple of red herrings out there for who the real bad guy is, if that's something that you're trying to keep a mystery, so that your readers are always kind of wondering, well, who is it really? That is an example of multiple red herrings being used well. The difficulty with red herrings is when you get too many of them going, your reader loses track of the story. You see this a lot in murder mysteries, where everybody is a suspect because everybody has a motive is a lot more effective than nobody is a suspect. Clue? Yes. I'm also thinking of the movie that just came out called Knives Out, where, oh, well, this person is a suspect because they have this motive. And then this person is a suspect because they have this motive, blah, blah, blah. Having more than one red herring, especially per character, gets really diluted and you lose track of your story. So be very careful using this tool. And it can feel like a waste of the reader's time because they spent so much time wondering and questioning about a multitude of different distractions that when they finally get the resolution, they start wondering about all these loose ends that never quite get wrapped up. If you're going to have more than one red herring, you need to tone it down, maybe two at the most, and keep it sparing. And if possible, in your mystery, however you've set up your mystery, because again, this happens most often in mysteries, if possible, have the same solution for as many red herrings as possible. So part of why it's called a red herring is people tried to use them to distract hunting dogs. The idea is they'd leave a fish behind and the dog would be attracted to the fish and eat the fish and lose the scent and be able to get away. So bringing in one of my oldest favorite shows, Mythbusters. Yay! This myth was busted. In episode 148, they used a herring to try to distract a scent hound, and it was distracted for a little bit. It went, it had a tasty meal, but then it got back on the track of the scent and found the goal that it was searching for. So nice try, no cigar. If we're going to go cliche, we're going all the way. But that's the nice thing is that In a story, a red herring should only distract for a little bit. You should get back on track, start dropping hints to tease your readers just right. Mystery is a very, very difficult genre to write in. Yeah, you end up having a lot of dilution of story before you get a really good mystery. We talked about the double blind earlier. There's one very common one where everyone knows it's the butler who did it. It's never the obvious suspect, so we're going to interview everybody and get all of this information. And turns out, the butler did it. So that's a, a double blind where kind of the whole story ends up being a red herring. No, it couldn't be them because 
all of the evidence points to them. Well, yeah, it turns out that's because it's them. So this is also kind of a little bit of that shaggy dog idea where you spend the entire show leading them away from the butler just to come back to the butler in the end. So what was the point of leading them away? So you have to be careful if you want that kind of twist at the end, your foreshadowing needs to be subtle, not a, the butler did it, but we're going to interview everybody else just because. And there should be a, in storytelling, it's called a new world order. Something should have changed throughout the process of interviewing everybody. We find out that there's an enormous will attached to it and it's given to the maid. There's more happening that changes the world through the interview process. If the world doesn't change, then it feels like a waste of time. So are characters and plots the only thing that can be a red herring? Turns out props are one of my favorite red herrings. And yes, it feels like a cop-out if you use it incorrectly. But if I pull a sword off of the mantle and then go to try to stab you with it and the sword blade collapses into the pommel and it just sort of pokes you, then the prop has been a red herring. We're going to talk about putting weapons on mantles next episode. But the prop itself has been a red herring for stabbing people because you think it's going to go one way and it goes that way instead. One of my least favorite red herrings has to do with the amount of entertainment left in the story. So the 20 minutes left in the episode, or we're 10 minutes into the movie, I still have 180 pages left, but I know who it is. There's no incentive to keep reading. If you divert the path down this way and just sort of annoy your readers and waste everybody's time, they're not going to pick up the next book you write. So to kind of just wrap up our episode about the red herring... It is a very, very useful trope. Learn what it is. Learn how it can be applied before you try to use it in your stories. Because a red herring can easily go rotten quickly. Yes. The biggest thing is you're using tropes as you're writing. Entertain yourself. In mystery, as a pantser, it can be very difficult. But it can also be fun. Because you can surprise yourself along the way if you are writing the right way, which means you write selfishly. If you have a question or comment for our hosts or a topic you'd like us to cover, send us an email at writingroots at aspenhousepublishing.com or find us on Facebook by searching for Aspen House Publishing. 